Okay, Acts 9, we spent the last two weeks looking at Acts chapter 8, which are the results of this great persecution that happened in Jerusalem after Stephen is martyred. So Stephen is martyred for his faith, he's stoned to death. Uh, There's a great wave of persecution that breaks out. It's led by Paul. Uh, Many of the disciples in Jerusalem scatter, and the church goes underground, and we've seen the results of that scattering. We saw Philip in Samaria planting the church with a capital C in Samaria for the first time. He's breaking through racial and religious uh, barriers to do that. Uh, We saw even a little taste of the gospel going to the ends of the earth last week when uh, this Ethiopian government official is converted and baptized. So for us, we said the takeaways are God redeems everything. He uses even evil things like persecution to accomplish his purposes. In this case, it was spreading the gospel to the nations. And we said for us also to keep in mind, God uses regular people who are full of the spirit and full of the word. Regular people full of the spirit, full of the word are used by God to accomplish his purposes. And so that's uh, that that is available for us. Today we're going to look, There's a, the first word in our chapter today is meanwhile. It's almost like a TV show where you've seen all this stuff happening and then there's this cutaway to what's been going on off camera. And so that's what we're going to look at. Meanwhile, while all of this good stuff has been happening uh, with Philip and the apostles in Samaria, God has been zeroing in on Paul, uh, who was the chief persecutor of the church at that point. Uh, I'm gonna, we're going to read Acts chapter 9, but Paul several different places Uh, in Acts and then in some of his letters, gives some autobiographical information that I'm going to refer to, but I'm not going to quote. You can see the scriptures there up on the screen if you want to check me uh, to make sure I'm not uh, telling, to make sure I'm telling the truth. Uh, You can look at those scriptures. I'm not going to cite them because it'll bog us down. And also there can be some some confusion over this guy's name. Is he Saul? Is he Paul? Does it matter? When does it change? Uh, He's a Jew, and so he had a Hebrew name, Saul. He was born in a Roman city, and so he had a Roman name, Paul. And so he just switches back and forth based on the context. So at the beginning of Acts, he's referred to as Saul because most of the context he's dealing with is Jewish. In Acts 13, we never see him referred to as Saul after that because then he's in a more Greek-speaking context, and so he uses his Roman name, Paul. So you can call him whatever you want. I'm going to call him Paul because that's what comes to my mind. So... Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, while all of that stuff was happening in Samaria, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats to the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now, I'm going to pause. Do you all remember, we, if you've been here for a while, we originally, and by we I mean me, wanted to call Stonebridge people of the way. Do you all remember that? But I was told that it sounded a little culty by some people. Stonebridge is not in the Bible. You just saw people of the way. That's just, you keep that in mind as we keep reading. Would you come if we had that name? Who would, who would have left? You were here from the beginning. Come on. Missy, you, Mary Margaret, you would have left. That hurts. Are there any counselors in the room? No. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. 
The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by hand in Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord said, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your holy people, to all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with his disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him, but Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him, but his followers took him by night and lowered him a basket through an opening in the wall. When Saul came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul, excuse me, he told them how Saul in his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he'd preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It also increased in numbers. So when I was thinking about Paul, my first thought was he was a terrorist. If you were a Christian in Acts chapter 8, Paul is a religious terrorist is what he is. There's a picture of him up on the screen. This was described that it's not in the Bible. It's an apocryphal book. It says Paul was small in size, bald-headed, bow-legged, with meeting eyebrows. So that means he had a unibrow. A large, red, and somewhat hooked nose. So not an attractive man, I don't think. But he was top of his class when it came to being a Jew. He's way up here. He said, strictest sect of our religion is a Pharisee. I was one of those. I was faultless when it came to keeping the law. I never broke it. He said he says about he was trained under Gamaliel. That'd be like a, an Ivy League education in Judaism. Gamaliel was a very well respected um, Jewish rabbi. We've already seen him in Acts four, and one statement that he makes sways the entire uh, leading council at that point. Paul was one hundred percent convinced that Christianity was a heresy and needed to be stamped out. So he's this rising star. He says about himself, I was excelling beyond many of people, many people my own age in Judaism. So I'm at the top of the class, and he's become absolutely convinced that the gospel needs to be stamped out. He's convinced Christians are heretics. They're saying Jesus has been raised from the dead. They're saying Jesus has been glorified in heaven. And he's saying that's, that's not true. 
And he is obsessed. That is his word. He describes himself as obsessed with persecuting the church. He says he tries to force people to blaspheme. Damascus is 150 miles from Jerusalem. That's six days walk. That's how committed he is to stamping out the gospel. He started this persecution in Jerusalem. The Christians are scattering. There's a large Jewish community in Damascus. So he gets these extradition papers from the chief priest to say, I can go to Damascus 150 miles away. I can find Christians. If there was a trial, I always voted for the death penalty. That's what I did. He is 100% convinced that God is opposed to the gospel and that as this star student in the class, he needs to be opposed as well. He says he was zealous for God, zealous for the law, and the way he expressed that was in persecuting the church. So that guy is on his way to Damascus. In the middle of the day, there's this intense light. You can imagine how intense the light would have to be at, at noon to knock you down. He sees this intense light. It knocks him down. He hears a voice, and he physically sees Jesus. He doesn't, according to him, he doesn't have a vision. He doesn't have a dream. He sees Jesus the same way Peter and James and John and the other apostles saw Jesus in his resurrected body after um, the first Easter, during those 40 days when Jesus was on the earth, Paul says, I'm one of them. I saw him too from heaven, and I heard him speak to me. He has these witnesses who see, see and hear something, but not the details. So that they maybe can corroborate something happened on the road, but they don't know exactly what happened on the road. And so in that moment, what Saul hears is, what Paul hears is, why are you doing this to me? Why are you persecuting me. And in that one question, everything, I think, in Saul, everything crumbled. I think he was devastated by that one question. His entire identity up to this point had been based on, I'm the best at following God. I'm at the top of the class. I've exceeded people my own age. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm a Pharisee in terms of zeal. I'm, I'm persecuting the church with more vigor than anyone else. I'm it. I'm number one. And then what he hears from heaven and what he sees is this Jesus who he is convinced is still in a tomb, who he's convinced is a Saul. What are you doing? I think he's devastated. He doesn't speak for three days. I mean, he doesn't eat or drink for three days. Some people say it was because of shock. Maybe so. I think it was grief. I think he was undone because he realized he'd been running as hard as he could in the wrong direction. He took all, His identity was based on being a great follower of God. And then he realizes in one moment he hadn't been a great follower of God. He's been stamping out, actively opposing what God has been trying to do. So his companions take him to this house in Syria, in Damascus, on Straight Street. That street is still in Damascus. I'm sure it wouldn't be hard to get a hotel room in Syria right now. You can go see it, and you can. it's there. And he goes, and then God sends Ananias, a prophet, and you can see in Ananias' response, God says to him, I want you to go to Saul. And Ananias is going, do you know who he is? Do you, he, do you know why he's come? He's wreaking havoc in the church. Are you sure? And God says, go. You've got to tell him some things. You've got to tell him some things. You're going to pray for him. He's going to be healed. He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He's going to be uh, an apostle, a missionary to the Gentiles, and he's going to suffer. Some people may say, oh, the, the suffering, maybe that's tied to the fact that Paul was such a bad guy beforehand. It's not at all. I don't want you to make that connection, that the suffering 
as Paul experienced as a Christian, has nothing to do with the fact that he persecuted Christians prior to his conversion. God doesn't work that way. The reason Paul suffered was because he went first. He was an apostle to the Gentiles, so he was constantly breaking new ground. He was constantly taking the gospel to territories and to countries where the gospel had never been proclaimed. And every time he did, most of the time when he did that, he banged into opposition. Now he was a traitor to the Jews. He was their starting quarterback, and now he's a traitor for sure because he's proclaiming the truth um, that Jesus has raised from the dead. And even Gentiles have a hard time with him because he's undermining pagan religion as well. So again, I don't want you to hear Paul is suffering because he was a bad guy beforehand. Paul's suffering was um, as a consequence of his calling. The calling was be a missionary to the Gentiles. And as a result of that calling, you are going to suffer, Paul. And I think God let him know. I don't know kind of that would you rather game. Would you rather know that you're going to suffer or would you rather not know? I think for Paul, maybe it was, it was helpful. I think about for me, if I experience difficulty, sometimes my first thought is, did I miss God? And I think knowing in advance, hey, it's going to be hard, you're going to suffer, then when you're banging into those obstacles, when you're running into opposition, you can, rem- you can remember, oh, yeah, God said it, would, he said it would be like this. It doesn't mean I need to give up. It doesn't mean I've missed him at all. It just This is part of it. This is part of what it means to follow him. Maybe Paul was wired that way. I don't know. So Ananias goes, prays for him. Paul is healed. Then Paul spends a few days with the disciples, and he immediately jumps in to ministry there in Damascus, the place where he went with extradition papers to bring these Christians back as fugitives to try them synagogues. And rather than arresting Christians, he's now one of them, and he starts proclaiming Jesus is the Son of God. And the, the, the Bible word there, it says he proved. It's, it's placed together. It's almost like pieces of a puzzle. Paul was an expert in the Old Testament. He may have had the entire Old Testament memorized as a Pharisee of Pharisees. He easily could have had the whole Old Testament memorized. He knew all of these prophecies, all these promises about the Messiah. And now he'd spent a couple of days with the disciples, and he had physically seen Jesus, and he was recognizing how Jesus' life perfectly fulfilled these Old Testament prophecies. And he's laying those things together. He's placing them together. And the Jews in the synagogues don't know what to do with him. says he baffles them. They're confused and then they're frustrated, and then they just say, well, we're just going to kill you. Like, we don't know what to say about you anymore, so we're going to kill you. That's their response to him. This father, some people hear about it, and they let him down in a basket. Uh, rooms, it was common for rooms to be built in the city wall. So one of the people who had a room on the city wall um, let Paul down. And that says after many days that happened, that many days is actually three years. I forgot to say that earlier. So this, there's a three-year window there in that second half of chapter 9 that kind of gets blown past. So he's three years in Damascus, probably uh, roughly three years in Damascus, uh, spreading the gospel. He's developed somewhat of, of a following. Jews get mad. They try to kill him. He goes to Jerusalem. And they're going. Now, Damascus is 150 miles away. The last time they saw Paul in Jerusalem, what was he doing? Killing people. That's what he was doing. And so when he comes back, remember, there's no, think about communication in those days. No phones, no newspapers, no magazines, no radio, no TV, no internet. He's been in Damascus, 150 miles away, six-day walk for three years. They don't know. And he shows back up, Trojan horse, wolf in sheep's clothing, saying, I'm one of you. And they're going, I, mm, we're not sure. Barnabas comes along and vouches for him. 
we'll see Bar- that's kind of what Barnabas does throughout Acts. So Barnabas comes along. He vouches for Paul. Hey, listen, this guy's legitimate. He's had a legitimate conversion. He's been preaching the gospel for three years. He's faced persecution himself, which helps give some validity to his conversion. He's okay. So Paul spends some time there in Jerusalem until he ticks off the Jews there, and it appears that he's gone for about 10 years. And we see Paul again in Acts 13. It's about 10 years after he's left us here in Acts chapter 9. In that closing statement, there's now peace in the church. The chief persecutor has now been converted, and there's peace in the church. And I was thinking about that. I don't know if this is overly simplistic. But I was thinking about that in light of some of the global events. When we think about, I don't know a jihadist. I don't know any of those guys. But when I think about them, and I think about Paul, breathing out murderous threats, saying, I'm obsessed with persecuting Christians. I even forced them to blaspheme. If there's ever an opportunity to vote for the death penalty, I do that. I hunt them down wherever they are. I'm 100% convinced that what they're doing is against God. When I think, to me, there are some parallels there. And the answer, what brought peace, was what? His conversion. We need hearts. We can't bomb our way, appease our way, ignore our way out of that jihad mindset. We can win our way out. Jesus can win our way out. He's it. He grabs hearts. Hearts need to be changed. Again, that may be overly simplistic. When I think about our country and what we export, I'm not sure that what we're exporting is going to make a difference. But when I think about the church and what we can export, it's a completely different ballgame. What we have to offer gets gets at hearts. And when hearts begin to change, then there can be peace. There are are stories. You can read books. I can give you books, stories of Muslim men and women who have dreams just like Paul. They don't physically see Jesus the way Paul did, but he shows up in their dreams and says, I'm the one. I'm the one. We can pray for that. And I don't think that's pie in the sky. We can pray for that. God, show up in the dreams, particularly of these young men, who maybe on some level love their idea of who you are. Just like Paul. They're wrong on Jesus. Just like Paul. So show up. Show up. Stop them in their tracks. Tell them the truth. Let's see what begins to change. Again, that's side, a bit of a side note, but anyway. So what about for us? As you think about this and you think about Paul, one thing that I think we can all grab onto, salvation. You're saved from something and you're saved for something. We see that here in Paul. It's true for you as well. Paul was saved from life as a Pharisee. He was saved from a life that said, my relationship with God is based totally on my behavior. Think about the pressure involved. He says about himself, I was faultless in keeping the law. In his mind, he never broke a commandment. There's 613 commandments in the Old Testament. There are hundreds of additional rules that are wrapped around that by the rabbis. And Paul says, I never broke any of them. Can you imagine? I can't remember. Can you remember 613 commandments? Most of us can't keep 10. And he's saying, I kept all of these. 613 plus the others. Can you imagine how miserable a person he would have been to be around? 
Can you imagine that? And in his thinking, God would move in their nation, would send the Messiah, would rescue their country when everybody else or some critical mass of people started keeping the law better. So it's not just that he keeps it really well. He wants everybody else to also, or else God's not going to come back and do anything. Again, can you imagine being around him? Can you imagine what the pressure that he must have felt, this constant, constant watching everything, watching everything. Did I mess up today? Am I okay, God? Am I okay, God? He was rescued from that. He was rescued from self-righteousness in the broadest sense of that word, thinking his righteousness was based on what he did himself, as well as taking pride in how well he did in obeying God. He was saved from opposing the work of God. That's what he was saved from. What about you? Do you know what you were saved from? Can you write it down on an index card? I was saved from the wrath of God. We all were. God's wrath is his righteous anger poured out for sin. And we all, that's what Jesus bore for us on the cross. So we're all saved from the wrath of God. Can you be more specific? I, I, I've never been an alcoholic or a drug addict. I wasn't saved from that. But some of you were. You can write that down. I was saved from alcoholism. I was saved from self-righteousness. I was saved from fear. I was saved from guilt. Saved from loneliness. Saved from pride. I was saved from selfishness. I was saved from people pleasing. Do you know, what you, can you remember, what pit you were in when Jesus rescued you? Why does it matter? If you can remember not to wallow at all, but if you can remember what you were saved from, it can lead to worship. If I can remember specifically what God saved me from, it's easier for me to thank him. I can thank him specifically for things he's done in my life, which can lead to worship. It can create or stir compassion in me for other people who are still in the pit. It can remind me of my need for grace. I don't have it all together. I constantly need to be dependent upon the Lord. It can add some credibility. That's probably not the best word. It can add some credibility to my witness. For people who are in the pit that I came out of, I can say, hey, I know what that's like. God rescued me. He can rescue you as well. Sometimes for people, that personal connection is important. Someone who's walked in their shoes. Sometimes that's a big deal for people. You remembering what you were saved from can open up opportunities for you to help other people who are in that pit. Can you, can you list it? Maybe even, even as you think back, what about now? Are there things that Jesus is trying to save you from now? Salvation is not just a one-time event. It's final in terms of our position before God. But he's constantly working to deliver us and to set us free from the chains. That is he trying to save you from now, today? Even some of you who've been Christians for 20 or 30 or 40 years, are there things he's trying to set you free from, to save you from? Can you list those out, help you cooperate with what he's doing in your life? Paul was also saved for, you see, it's super clear. Ananias, go, tell him what I've got for him. When Paul talks about this event in Acts 22 and again in Acts 26, he says, I got an assignment. That's his word. I had, Jesus gave me an assignment. These are the things, he says, Jesus, I've assigned you to do these things. I've assigned you to be an apostle or a missionary to the Gentiles. We were all saved for abundant life. We were saved for a relationship with God. We were saved for freedom. You know specifically anything beneath that, anything more particular or unique or personal to you? Do you know what he saved you for? Can you articulate that 
at all. I think it's important for us. Psalm 139, God formed you and shaped you together in your mother's womb. Ephesians 2.10, he's got good works for you to do. There's some keys there, some clues as to what he saved you for. He's created you for a particular life. and He's created a particular life for you. And those things get married together. Hebrews talks about the race that God has marked for us. Psalm 16 talks about the boundary lines falling for us in pleasant places. Do you know the race? that he's carved out for you, that he's laid out for you? Do you know the track that he wants you to run on? For most of us, it feels a whole lot more like that. It's not a straight shot. We definitely don't feel like we're running around the oval. It's hard to know, but do you have any sense? God, what's the race that you've got for me? What's the race that you've laid out for me? You may be thinking, well, the whole thing's just about forgiveness of sins, right? I mean, that's what Jesus came to forgive me of sins, and that's it. And then I just kind of go and do my thing for the rest of my life and I die and I'll be in heaven. Jesus did not die to forgive you of your sins. He died to redeem you from sin and Satan and death. We were in bondage and he came to set us free. And forgiveness of sin is like the entry fee for the race. It's a fee that we couldn't pay. And so until our sins are forgiven, we can't be who God's created us to be and we can't run the race that he's laid out for us to race, to run. We can't do that. And once we're forgiven, then we can. But forgiveness is just the first step. It's not the whole deal. So do you have any idea what he saved you for? Individually, those of you who are married, have you ever talked about that? I do premarital counseling with couples. I say, what, tell me what a good life is. You're 80, you're 85, you're 90, whatever. You're done. You're sitting on the rocking chair looking back. What's a good life? Have y'all talked about that? Do you have any idea what God is saying for y'all? It may not be the American dream. That's the American dream. That may not be God's dream for your family. Those of you who are parents, your kids are about to go back to school, do you have any idea what, what race, what's the race God's laid out for your children? That can be a hard thing as parents. Our job is not to get them to run our race. It's for us to encourage them to run theirs. And as your kids get older in high school and then in college, that becomes more and more of our responsibility is to get out of the way and to cheer them on and say, that's it. That's the one God's got for you. It may not have been the one I had for you, but it's the one he's got for you. And that's the one you've got to run. And then parents, how about this for scary? What does God say to Paul? You're going to suffer. It very well could be that for some of us, our children will suffer. In obedience. And we go, that, that goes against every instinct that we have as parents. God knows his son suffered in obedience. Not saying that that's necessarily the case, but for us to say, what were you saved for? God, what did you save my kids for? And how do I help them run the race that you've got for them, even if there, there are going to be some obstacles in the way? How do I help them? Do that. Are you, are you asking those questions individually, as a husband and wife, as a family? I'd encourage you to think about some of that stuff and begin to ask the Lord, what is it? What did you say? Why am I still here? Why am, it's not just to make money. It's not just to run the rat race. It's not even to, to raise a family. Like, what, Why did you leave me here? What are the things that you would have me do? And then I would encourage you, just to get started. 
do something. For some of you, you hear me say that, and all it is is salt in the wound because you're going, I don't know if Jesus would appear to me and talk to me like he did to Paul. And then if he'd send a prophet to lay it out, I'm in. I'll do it. You're not going to get that. Do something. You never know if shoes fit till you put them on. Just try. Don't let the fact that you don't know exactly what God is calling you to do keep you from doing something. And you say, well, what if I run in the wrong direction? Who cares? Think about Paul. Was anybody running more in the wrong direction than him? Could you run in the wrong direction any faster or any farther than Paul did? Do any of you have a group of Christians in your basement that you're planning on killing? You don't. You don't. Are you hunting down believers? You're not doing that. If God can stop Paul, who's running 180 degrees away from what he's doing in the world, God's call on Paul's life is spread the gospel. Paul's understanding of God's call on his life is stamp out the gospel. You can't, you, you can't be farther apart. Build the church. Kill Christians. You can't. They're not even close. You're not going to miss it by that much. He was wrong on Jesus. You're not. There's no way you can miss it by that much. And even if you miss it by that much, take comfort in Acts 9. Because what does God do? Steps into Paul's life. What are you doing? When Paul talks about this later, he says, Jesus said to him, why are you kicking against the goads? Goads, a pointy stick that was used to make animals walk in a certain direction. Why are you doing that? Why are you going against what I have for you? It hurts you to do that. God has a great, great, great track record of getting attention, of getting the attention of people and turning them around. So don't let the fact that you may run in the wrong direction keep you from beginning to run. He will redirect you and it will be so much easier. Easier to, to steer a moving ship than one that's sitting in a dock. So do something. Look for an opportunity to bless somebody, to serve somebody, to love somebody. Who's in your head? Reach out to them. Where's a need that you see in our city? Step in. Who cares if you're running in the wrong direction? He can move you in the right one. You are saved from something. I want you to know what. Not because I want you to wallow, but because I want your remembrance of what God saved you from to stir worship in you, to stir compassion in you, to give you credibility when you're reaching out to other people in a similar pit, to remind you of your need for grace. And you were saved for something, and I want you to know what. It provides intention to your life. It provides focus and direction for your life. It, it, it helps your life matter eternally. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians, I think it's 3, where Paul's talking about building and he says, you, you want to use the right materials, gold, silver, costly stones. Don't use wood. Don't use hay. Don't use stubble. All that stuff, it just burns. You still go to heaven, but you go to heaven as one whose feet are on fire. You don't want that. Like, you don't want that. Knowing what God saved you for will keep you from that existence. It will move you into a place of saying, there's, there's purpose for me. There's calling. There's destiny. And it's eternal. Don't hear that as pressure to make a decision. Or just hear that as an invitation from God. He's got something for you. And his desire is for you to step into it. Let's pray. God, I thank you for those in the room. I'm thinking of our students over here, ninth grade, 10th grade, 11th, 12th grade students. In a sense, 
They've got it. it's, It's all in front of them. There's not a whole lot of decisions that have been made. And God, we want to pray for them. That you, would rem- that you would begin to speak to them at 14 and 15 and 16 and 17 years old. Here's the race I've got for you. Here's the one I want you to run. So they can make decisions as teenagers and as folks in their early 20s to align their life around your priorities and calling. Most of us in this room, we're already over-obligated and over-committed and over-scheduled. And there's so many things. We're talking about... St- steering a ship, and it's like we've got an aircraft carrier's worth of stuff in our life. And to think about shifting in any direction is overwhelming. God, would you speak to us? Paul, within a few days, went from persecuting to proclaiming. It might not be that easy for us, but we can change. So show us, one, what have you, what have you saved us for? What have you got for us? What's the race that you've got for us to run? And how do we begin to wrap our life around that calling? God, I pray for individuals. I pray uh, that you would speak clearly. I pray for couples to have life-giving conversations this week, for families, for parents to begin to ask you, God, what's the race that you have for my kids? And how do I cheer them on in that? Is there anything that I need to die to in terms of what I want for them? so that they're free to pursue what you want for them. Show us as parents how to do that as our kids continue to get older. God, I pray that you would remind us not to wallow, but to worship what you've saved us from. That we would constantly be amazed at your incredible grace, that while we were still sinners, you died for us. That you pulled us out from a pit. You set us on solid ground. When you look at us, what you see is pure and holy and blameless and spotless without stain or wrinkle. God, I pray for any here who wrestle with that. They haven't been saved from or for yet. They're still deciding. God, I pray like Paul that you would speak to them in a way that they would understand, that you would speak clearly and strongly not in an accusatory way. What are you doing? But lovingly, what are you doing? I've got more for you than that. I've got an abundant life for you. I created some things just for you to do. I created you primarily for relationship with me. God, would you speak to them today and this week? Draw them in. I pray like Paul, they would respond to your voice in their life. God, even thinking globally, sometimes I just want to put my head in the sand and pretend everything's okay. God, I pray for the Middle East. I pray for Muslims. I pray particularly for those radical jihadists who in some ways are like Paul, God, would you speak to them? Would you stop them in their tracks as they're on a rampage? God, as they're breathing out murderous threats, would you show up in their dreams? Would you show up in visions? God, for the church that exists as small and 
as it is in those communities. Would you show up through your people? Would you arrest these guys in the best sense of that word? Speak truth. Convert. That there be peace. True peace. So God, we're asking you to work in, in our hearts and in our world and every place in between. So Holy Spirit, come and speak and lead and guide. And we want to be receptive uh, to what you're saying and how you're leading us. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll have ministry teams here up in the front. We'll pray with you about anything at all that you've got going on. But if the from and for thing resonates, we would love to pray with you about that. So you guys can stand. Bo will dismiss us in three or four minutes.